So let's close with a chorus, so if you'll choose one, that'd be great. So, Satan loves religion. Now, if you've been around ICM very long, you understand what I'm saying. You understand that I see religion as a pejorative term. Um, Satan loves them all. You know why he loves them all? Because he invented them all. He created every so-called religion on the planet. He created them. I have no doubt it's the greatest source of non-stop entertainment for him to relish in all the stupid things he's gotten men to believe. I can almost hear him laughing um, with his minions and all the cartoonish and goofy things he has men believing. Um, yeah, I can, <laughs> I can almost hear him laughing. If you know anything about the history of mankind, you know that Mankind has, through the years, worshipped everything from bugs to stars to mostly now himself. Man will worship almost anything or anyone but the true God, but Jesus Christ. Satan has some men believing that you can reincarnate up the food chain and be absorbed into the universal spirit. He has others believing that you can achieve an enlightened consciousness and achieve nirvana. He's got some men believing that jihad is the way to go and celestial virgins are the payoff. He has some men believing that you can be the god of your own planet. He has some men wanting to be an operating Thetan, and I don't know what that is. You'll have to Google Tom Cruise on that. Um, and of course, in our part of the world, secularism and humanism is becoming the religion of choice. Man just rejoices in himself, right? Man just rejoices in himself. There are 10,001 Silly things that Satan has been successful in marketing to the human race. But the one that I think he's most proud of, and you've heard me say this before, is pseudo-Christianity. It's the false version of Christianity that is prevalent in really every corner of the globe. From the ritualistic work, works-based sacramental religiosity of Roman Catholicism to the rote liturgical superstitious mysticism of Eastern Orthodoxy to the liberal cheap grace, cotton candy, name it and claim it, genres of modern Protestantism. Satan loves. He loves messing around with God's revelation. And he loves creating pseudo Christian varieties. If you're very astute at all, and you pay much attention at all, if you roll out of bed on occasion, <laughs> and you, you look at the way the world is, and you look at the way the church is, you realize that Satan has co-opted much of what is called Christianity. 
Much of what is called Christianity has morphed into something else. And we talk about this a lot. We talked about it several weeks ago when I talked to you about the Bible. Many so-called Christian churches and denominations no longer hold to the Bible as their supreme authority. They will quote it when it suits their purposes and it meets their agenda. But if not, they ignore it. So they do not submit to the truth of God's Word. This is not a new problem. If you're familiar with your Bible, you realize this was happening in the Old Testament with false prophets. And it has happened almost in every book in the New Testament after the Gospels. The, the apostles are fighting false teachers and, and pseudo-Christianity. It happened in Old Testament Judaism. When Jesus arrives on the scene, Judaism is apostate. They are trusting in their works. They are trusting in their religion. They are trusting in their goodness. They are trusting in their self-righteousness. They are trusting in their temple. They are trusting in their ceremonies. They don't look at God at all anymore. It's pretty much just religion. I just do my religious stuff. I'm good to go. Right? This is what Judaism has devolved into as Jesus arrives on the scene. And they're led by a sect called, you heard the text read, this man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the spiritual leaders of the Jews. You may remember what Jesus called these men in Matthew 23. He called them sons of hell. Now, these are the most religious men who've ever walked the planet. You may want to debate me on that, but uh, if you read much about the Pharisees, most of these guys had the Old Testament memorized. Large swaths of the Old Testament memorized. These guys, these guys were paragons of religion. They loved their religion. They were good at their religion. So tonight, as we continue in the Gospel of John, we will see how the living God, and what's His name? We talked about Him last week. What's His name? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What's His name? Who's the only God? All other gods are pretenders. Who is the living God? Someone tell me, what is His name? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Nobody else is God. He is God. This is the Gospel of John. If Jesus Christ is not God, <laughs> John has written the most blasphemous book ever penned. Because the whole book is pointing at Jesus and saying, here He is. You remember what we saw last week? He used the word logos. In the beginning was the word. Why does John use this word? Why does the Holy Spirit instruct John to use the word logos, the Greek word logos. It's because the Gentiles and the Jews both know exactly what John is talking about. He's pointing at Jesus. He's pointing at God. The Gentiles understood this. The logos is divine reason and understanding. And of course, the Jews had always uh, been spoken to through the Word of God, so there's no misunderstanding. John is saying to the whole world, he's saying to you and he's saying to me, he's saying to every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet, this is God, here He is. Emmanuel, God with us. 
You can not believe it or dislike it, but you can't misunderstand it. It's what John is saying. And it's what we talked about last week. It's what Jesus owned for Himself. Before Abraham was, what? I am. And every Jew knew what that meant. I am. The name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. So just a brief summary. I'm going to bring you up to speed from where we left off last time we were together. Um, the last verse we looked at last week, John 1.18, tells us that Jesus has explained God. Between verses 19 and 34, we get this summary ministry of John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet. And what's the last Old Testament prophet saying? What's his whole ministry? What's he doing? There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus transcends the prophets. Okay? He transcends the prophets. Between verses 35 and 51 of John 1, you may remember I preached 10 weeks ago. It's a perfect, you know, New Year sermon, and that's why I preached it. Jesus encountered five men, and he said, Follow me. Unbelievably, they all did, right? He, he starts to call his disciples. Well, Jesus is still saying, Follow me, right? Very few will follow him. But in that great text, five men heard that invitation and they went with him. It's a beautiful, beautiful text. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go online and download it because it's just a beautiful, beautiful text. So Jesus transcends, get this, He transcends the prophets and He transcends all your previous plans. All your plans before Christ. He will turn your plans upside down. Once you meet Him, once you fall in love with Him, your old plans are dust compared to the new life you have in Him. So Jesus transcends all your previous plans once you meet Him. Then in John chapter 2, 1 through 3, Jesus turns the water into wine. And some people, I've, I've even heard some people say, well, this is some kind of trivial miracle. And it's like, what? It's like an oxymoron. Can there be a trivial miracle? Well, why is God changing water into wine? Because He's the new wine. Dead religion is over. Did you notice He, comes to, he does His first miracle at a wedding? What's the significance of this? The groom is here. Right? The groom has come for his bride. The groom is here. And he changes water into wine. He's bringing joy. No more dead religion. Joy in God. Divine joy. God, Jesus Christ, transcends Judaism. He transcends Judaism. And then in John 2, 12-25, Jesus drives out the money changers in the temple with power and authority and He prophesied that He will die and be resurrected. He said, destroy this temple. He's talking about Himself. In three days, I will raise it up. Of course, the sole purpose of the temple was what? To point to Messiah. To point to Jesus. Right? was the whole purpose of the temple. Jesus transcends the temple. So, that brings us to John chapter 3. Jesus' encounter with one of the most religious men who ever walked the planet. 
And I want you to note, this is a religious man who actually is attempting to worship the right God. You know, there are billions on the planet worshiping demonic gods, false gods. Nicodemus, at least he knows God's name and he knows God's Word and he's been in God's temple, but he doesn't know God. This is what Jesus says to this religious man. You guys know the Pharisees. It's a sect of Judaism that rose up uh, between the 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, They externalized their religion. It was all performance-based. It was all done in such a way that everybody could see just how righteous I was because I was always doing my righteousness in front of everybody. They were into impressing God. They believed that they could earn God's favor by being religious and doing religious things. They prided themselves on keeping the law of Moses and oh, guess what else they did? They added 600 more laws on top of the law of Moses so they could really be religious, right? And some of these are just crazy. One of them I recall in my research was a woman shouldn't look in a mirror on the Sabbath because she'd be tempted to, if she saw gray hair, she'd be tempted to pull it and that would be work. Um, what was another one? Oh, vinegar was considered medicinal. Now, you could drink it on the Sabbath, but you couldn't gargle it because that was work. You could eat, an, you could eat the egg laid on the Sabbath if you planned on killing the hen the day following the Sabbath. Um, Presumably the chicken deserves to die for, yeah, presuming to lay an egg on the Sabbath. Um, but if you're not going to kill the chicken, you can't eat the egg. I mean, I mean this, is where, this is where they were. This is how they had devolved. These guys loved their religion. It made them feel good about themselves. It wasn't about God at all. It was about them. It was about them. Again, Matthew 23, you may remember Jesus said eight times to these men, He said, Woe are you. I want you to understand, the most religious men who ever walked the planet, Jesus said, Woe are you. What does the word woe mean? It means, it's a, it's a term of denunciation. It means... Your inheritance will be dreadful. It will be horrible. It will, there will be anguish. There will be misery. This is what God is saying to the religious. Men who trust in their religion. Men who love their religion. And never, ever look at God and love Him. This is what the New Testament is telling us. So beloved, as we get into this text, I want you to understand just how deceptive, misleading, and terminal religion can be. It's a lot easier not to eat an egg laid by a chicken on the Sabbath than to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a lot easier to attend a worship service on Sunday than to honor God at the office and at the university and in the neighborhood and in your family. It's a lot easier to give up a few hours on Sunday to show up for church than to give yourself away to Christ. Which is always the call, right? 
Jesus doesn't call anybody to be a church member, right? You got this. He never says that. What does He say? Be my disciples. Now, you know, we've had about 800 people come through the church in 13 years. And I've met lots of church members. And you can tell, there's a difference between church members and disciples. You can tell. And so I lovingly say all the time on a regular basis, don't simply be a church member. It's good to be a member of a church. It's a good thing. But God help you if that's all. There He is. Jesus says, follow me. He says, do what I say. We talked about it, was it last week? Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? This is the call of Jesus Christ. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. I think maybe you heard about the water to wine thing. I think maybe he's thinking about the bride and the groom, this metaphor, this Old Testament metaphor. I think he... He understands that, you know, there's something up with this guy from Nazareth. Because in all of my religion, I have no joy, I have no pleasure, I have no delight, I have no life. I have religion, but I am not alive. I think Nicodemus knows this. You know this. I know this. We all know it. We are alive in God or we're playing a game with God. We all know it. We all know it. I think Nicodemus knows it. He knows, he knows that what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11 is true. God said eternity in the heart of man. I must have God. Nicodemus is at the top of the food chain. You know, if I don't know what it's like in your country, but he's, he's kind of like, you know, if I'm an American, so he'd be like one of the movers and shakers in Washington, D.C. Everybody would know his name. He would always be being interviewed on television. Everybody wants to know what Nicodemus thinks. He's one of the power brokers in Jerusalem. Again, he's at the top of the food chain. And he's nowhere. So he comes to Jesus. He comes out to meet Jesus. You heard the text read. Chapter 3, verse 1 of John. Now there was a man of the Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came out to him by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Again, Nicodemus, son of Abraham, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the best, one of the best Jews ever. He knows he's got nothing. So he comes to this carpenter from Nazareth. And no doubt Nicodemus thinks, I'm, I'm probably most of the way there. I'm probably pretty good. Maybe I'm just missing one thing. I want to go talk to this rabbi who's doing these amazing signs. I just want to go talk to him. Maybe he'll help me dot my I or cross my T. I'm pretty sure I'm basically there. I think this is maybe what's in his head as he goes out to meet Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. 
Jesus says, man, you're nowhere. Nicodemus, you're nowhere. That's basically what he says to him. Jesus says, truly, truly. What does it mean anytime you see truly, truly in the, in the text of the Bible? What does it mean? It means this is urgently, non-negotiably, critically important. That's what it always means. Especially if it's coming off the lips of Jesus Christ. God, is, God incarnate is speaking, right? God is speaking. Truly, truly, He says, don't miss this. That's what it means. Don't miss this. It's probably one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's what it means to be converted. To be a Christian. God incarnate the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus says to one of the most religious men who have ever walked the planet. What is the Greek word translated again? What does it mean? It means you have to be changed completely from the beginning. You have to be changed all over again. You have to be changed from above Otherwise, uh, in other words, you have to be changed by God. This is what Jesus is saying. What does it mean to be born again? To be changed by God. You can't get there through religion. You're never going to get there through religion. This is what is meant by the phrase born again. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you've got to be overhauled, man. He's basically saying you need a miracle. And it's what, you know, this is not a private conversation or it wouldn't be in the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying this to you and He's saying it to me too. Are you merely a church member or are you born again? This is the challenge, beloved. Are you born again? Jesus says you can't, you won't go to heaven if you're not born again. It doesn't matter how religious you are. You could never be as religious as Nicodemus. I bet I could add up all the religious doings of everybody in this room. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even get close to Nicodemus. You wouldn't be close to Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him, you're nowhere. You're nowhere, Nicodemus. You're nowhere. Nicodemus is just like you and me. He needs a miracle. And if you don't understand you need a miracle, then you've never understood the Gospel. You need a miracle. And I need a miracle. Let me just say this. Religion is about man doing something. Biblical Christianity is about God doing something. This is why I never call Christianity a world religion. It doesn't even compare with the rest of them. The rest of them are demonic. They are lies. They're not from God. It's about, it's about doing things. Biblical Christianity is about God doing a thing. It's about God saving a people for the glory of the name of His Son. You know, we get this misunderstanding in the modern church. It's about us. He loves us so much. Well, yes, He does love us so much, but it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. And we have to be caught up in the glory of God because He loves us. You know, the Gospel is preached in many places like it's all about you, right? It's all about you. Can I, can I break it to you? <laughs> it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. 
And oh yes, He loves you infinitely. But that doesn't make you the center of the universe. He is the center of the universe. This is a great error in much of the modern church. That it is, it's, about, it's not about us, beloved. It's about Him. It is about Him. It's why Christianity is hated in many places in the world because there's no room for human accomplishment. There's no room for human pride. You can't do anything but receive what God is offering and giving. This is how one way in which Christianity differs from every other so-called world religion. So we heard this. I don't know if I read it last week. I don't think I did. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. God says it. But as many as received him, that's Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. How were they born? By God. This is biblical Christianity. God is doing something. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. Yes, of course, we must exercise repentance and faith. These two gifts of the Spirit of God, repentance and faith, we must exercise them. But the core truth of Christianity is, is that God has done something astonishing. He's saving rebellious sinners. It's why Christians sing. It's why no other religion sings like we sing. You know, sometimes it's just Karen and I leading and Horatio's gone, Josh is gone, Andrea's gone. And it's really not so good when Pastor Jim and Karen... But you know what? It doesn't matter. We sing because He's awesome. We sing because it's about Him. It's not about us. It's about Him. Let me just read a couple. This is an Old Testament, New Testament... Truth, Old Testament, quickly. Deuteronomy 36. The Lord will circumcise your heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. This is what God is doing. It's the heart transplant. Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Jeremiah 24. If you want these complete references, email me. I'll send you my notes. God says, and I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me with their whole heart. New Testament, 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Most of you are familiar with Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins made us alive together with Christ. 1 Peter 1 For you have been born again not of the seed which is perishable but imperishable that is through the living and abiding Word of God. In Christian conversion a death happens. I die to death. And a new birth happens. I am born again unto life. That's why last week when we were talking about the introduction of Jesus, He is the life and the light of the world. Right? Remember that? From last week? So, for those of us who are born again, there is a death to the past and we are raised up anew 
to live for the first time. You know, how's it go? Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. That's the truth of Christianity. It's, I won't read it to you. I was going to read it to you, but for the sake of time. Uh, if you go to the Message Bible and you read from Romans, Romans 6, verses 13 to 14, it talks about how we are new and how we've, we've left sin. doesn't mean we're immune from sin. We still struggle with sin, but we have left it. We are alive to God. We are, we are cooperating with the Spirit of God. We are becoming sanctified. We are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are moving on with God. It's what born-again Christians do. Church members don't do this. They join the church and they never change. They never change. They still love their sin more than they love God. The born-again may fall into sin, but he hates it. He hates it. He loves Christ preeminently. It's what's true of those who are born again. So Jesus says, man, you need a miracle. You know, we talk about this a lot. Religion is always outside in, right? Born again Christianity is inside out. And so the Pharisees were good at outside in, right? <laughs> they were good at outside in. You know, Jesus said to them, you know, you're like whitewashed tombs. They could... They can paint the outside, but inside their heart's still dead, right? They still love themselves, their, their selfish ambitions, their self-importance, and their uh, arrogance and haughtiness against God and their sin more than anything else. And they may even love their religion more than anything else. I studied in seminary a Baptist preacher who was converted while he was preaching. <laughs> he loved being in the ministry. He loved being a big name in town. He loved being looked up to. Right? And one day God converted him while he was preaching. <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great story. So, Nicodemus knows what Jesus is talking about. Right? He's an intelligent man. But he can't see how he could ever change like this. And this is what he says in verse 4. Let me read verse 3. Jesus has said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? So Nicodemus knows what he's saying. He knows. He just can't understand how it could ever be possible. You know how it's possible? You already know. How is it possible? God does a miracle. Do you see why it's blasphemous for Christians to touch what God does in the salvation of a soul? Listen, <laughs> I'm a preacher, but I don't ever touch that. Oh, Jim, many people have been saved in your ministry. No! Many people have been saved because God is great. And God saves people. It has not, almost not, it, 
I'm, all I am is like a mouthpiece. I am nothing more than a mouthpiece. Any true pastor will tell you that. It has nothing to, almost nothing to do with me. I'm, an irrepl- I'm, a, I'm a replaceable part. You know, God talks through an ass in the Old Testament, right? You know the story. God can talk through an ass if He wants to. I'm nothing. In the big scheme. But God is a Savior. God is saving His people. Let me pick up here at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it, is, where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, Jesus says there in verse 5, truly, truly, again, you have to get this right, Nicodemus, and everyone who ever reads this text, you got to get this right. This is non-negotiable. So what does he mean, born of water? This text is often misunderstood and misinterpreted and misapplied. Uh, One of the primary rules of interpretation is this. What did Nicodemus hear? What What did Jesus say? What was the intent of Jesus for Nicodemus to hear? You always have to put yourself in the first century with respect to the New Testament letters. Nicodemus did not hear that I must be baptized by water as a prerequisite to be saved. Nicodemus did not hear that. I listened to John Piper on this text and he says, millions believe they are saved by the water of baptism. Piper calls this a global tragedy. And he is right. We are not saved by baptism. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Baptism does not save. God saves. Baptism is simply an expression, outward expression of what God has done inwardly. Again, I refer you back to Romans chapter 6. So Nicodemus doesn't hear that water baptism is required to be saved. And Nicodemus doesn't hear that, uh, that this is the water of natural birth. Nicodemus hears that he must be washed. This is what he hears. I must be divinely washed and cleansed by God. This is what Nicodemus hears. This is metaphor. Only God can wash a soul. Only God can do it. Religion's never going to get it done. Only God can do it. You may remember David prayed in Psalm 51 2. Wash me and cleanse me of my sin, O God. Ezekiel 36 25, God said, I will wash you and with clean water and make you clean. This is what Nicodemus is hearing. He's hearing what only God can do. That's what this whole text is about. <laughs> God is, listen, if you came in here religious, I hope you leave irreligious. I hope you put your religion down. I hope you look at God. Stop looking at what you've done and what you prayed and what some pastor told you. You start looking at God and let God, you know, let God be your Savior. You trust in God. You trust in Christ. 
Let me read Jeremiah 33, 8 to you. What is Nicodemus here? This is what he hears. God says, I will cleanse you from all iniquity by which you have sinned against me. I will pardon your iniquities by which you have sinned against me and by which you have transgressed against me. Nicodemus is hearing the supernatural cleansing, purification, and forgiveness of sin that only God can do. This is what Nicodemus is hearing. Beloved, it's been tr- it was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. Believing, trusting, knowing, loving, following God, it's always been a supernatural proposition. It's always been a supernatural proposition. It's always been a miracle from God. And I'm... It's so tiresome to go into many churches and the God side of the equation is almost always ignored. You could spend the rest of your life repenting of your sin and believing. But if God doesn't do something, nothing will happen. No one gets saved apart from what God does. And it's so tiresome and so disappointing to have many denominations simply highlighting what the, the man, the, 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 the human side of salvation. It's always center. It's always center stage. It's always highlighted. Instead of focusing on what God has done. Again, I want to remind you, religion is about man doing something. Biblical Christianity is about God doing something. You guys know the famous verse, Titus 3.5, He has saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament teaches us that the Holy Spirit invades the life of the Christian. And we are born again, baptized, indwelt, and sealed all at the same time. And then we, as I referred to you earlier, then we exercise the gift of repentance and the gift of faith. And we come into relationship with the living God. You know the great text, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, which highlight the, the divine and human side of salvation, which, is, which again in much of the modern church is often ignored. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Right? If God doesn't do what God does, we all land in hell. And beloved, there will be millions there will be millions of religious people in hell. There will be millions. It's not about religion. It's never been about religion. It's about coming into a personal relationship with the living God. His name is Jesus Christ. So verse 6 tells us that the flesh yields nothing. What did uh, God tell us in in the prophet of Isaiah, Isaiah 64.6? What what are are our righteous deeds like? What are they like? What is is the the deeds of the flesh? What are they like? Anybody remember? They are like, what? Filthy rags. 
Actually, the literal interpretation is the menstrual racks. It's what, it's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Oh, you're impressed with, with your religion? Let me tell you what your religion looks like to God. Filthy rags. It's what Jesus is saying. You're religious? You came in here tonight and you're religious? Let me tell you what your religion looks like to God. It's filthy rags to God. He is not impressed. He's not impressed with your religion. He's not impressed with mine. So, hell is full of religious men and women who trusted in their own self-righteousness, their ceremonies, their rituals, their sacraments, their confessions, their prayers, their good works, and their morality. What is it that God desires? David tells us in that beautiful Psalm 51 where he's in full mode confession. And what does he say? He says, You delight in a broken and contrite heart, O Lord. That's what the Lord delights in. Verse 7, Nicodemus is marveling. He doesn't understand. He just doesn't know how he could ever do what Jesus is talking about. And that's the point. He can't do it apart from the sovereign grace of God. Nicodemus is like, hey man, give me something to do. Give me something to attend. Give me something to pray. Give me a ceremony. Give me a sacrament. Give me something. And Jesus says, you must be born again. It's easy not to eat an egg laid by a chicken on the Sabbath. It's a lot easier to do that than to prostrate yourself before the living God and cry out to Him for mercy. Beloved, this is where mankind is. This is where every human being is. Jesus says, you must be born again. And I know. You've read your Bibles. It's not easy to be a Christian. Right? What does Jesus say? Just a couple of verses. He says, you've got to take up your cross and you've got to follow Me. He said, you'll be hated and persecuted by the world. He said, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He said, whoever wishes to save his life, he must lose it. Religion's so much easier than that. It's just so much easier. It's so much more manageable. You know, you give yourself away to Jesus, you don't know what's going to happen. But let me give you a testimony. I've been doing this for 34 years almost. He's the best ride available. Okay? I know that's like street vernacular. That's not a verse. That's a paraphrase of Pastor Jim. He's the best rush in the cosmos to know Him, to walk with Him, to relate to Him, to love Him, to feel His faithful goodness every day. It just simply doesn't get any better. I was thinking about, I was meditating. I go park under a tree sometimes when Karen and the guys are practicing. And I was thinking about it, you know. You know, you can, you can go out and sin, you know, We've all had sin in our lives. You know what you get from sin? You get maybe one, one moment of pleasure. But what is it after that? It's nothing. It's dust and ashes. 
What do you get from God? <laughs> it just never stops getting bigger. It, it just never stops getting bigger. If you're born again and you're in pursuit of, uh, of a deeper relationship with the living God, you're cooperating with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification, you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, it never stops getting bigger. I've given you 30... What did I say? Three? Four? 34 years of testimony. It just keeps getting bigger. I don't hold myself up as an example, but I do give witness that it just keeps getting bigger. So Jesus' point here is that salvation is of God. There is this holy, divine, supernatural, mysterious side to Christian conversion. You cannot manage it. This is what most denominations try to do. They say if you do these four things, then we're going to pronounce you a Christian. Well, it might be true, it might not be true. Have you been born again? Has it all changed? Do you find Jesus supremely interesting? You know, I, I, I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. One guy I baptized, he said, you know, he said there was a time when I just didn't find Jesus interesting. And then, bam! I loved Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is conversion. This is conversion. Jesus is attempting to get Nicodemus to stop looking at his religion and to look at God. It's what Jesus is saying to you and to me tonight. So, in closing, I have no idea how long I preach, so I apologize. I usually look at my watch and I forgot to do that. I'm about to close. Some of you think you're a Christian because your family is, a, is Christian. Some of you think you're a Christian because you were raised in the church. Some of you think you're a Christian because... Uh, you successfully parroted some prayer some guy told you to pray. Some of you think you're a Christian because you were baptized or confirmed. Some of you think you're a Christian because someone told you in authority, some pastor or priest or minister told you you were because you've done all the prescribed things. And you should never doubt. Well, you know what Paul tells the Corinthians? What does Paul say to the Corinthians in love? Hey, if I didn't love you, man, you know what I'd do? If you could, when you come in here, I'd tickle your ears. I'd make you feel good about yourself and I'd send you on your way because most likely you'll come back if I'll keep tickling your ears. But what does Paul say to the Corinthians? He loved the Corinthians and he said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So the most loving thing I can say to some of you who will not come back <laughs> is examine your heart. you'll probably never hear anyone invite you to a more important proposition than to examine your heart. Some of you think you're a Christian because you're a pretty good person. You don't do any of the really, really bad sins. And you go to church when it's not too inconvenient, right? Some of you, like Nicodemus, are looking at your religious credentials. If that's true of you, Jesus is saying, you're nowhere. Right now, tonight, you're nowhere. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying your religion won't save you. You're lost. You don't know God. Your self-righteousness is filthy rags. You're still dead in your trespasses and, trespasses and sins. You must be born again. So we, we saw the text. 
The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So how do we catch the wind? You know, this is a really good question. People ask me, Jim, so what must I do to be saved? What is the promise of God? In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, God says, if you will seek me, you will find me. This is the promise of God. If you seek God, you will find God. May I say some of you have never sought God? You're simply resting on some religious thing you did when you were younger. Jesus lovingly says to you, don't trust in that. Trust in your relationship with Me. Beloved, that's all we can trust in at the end of the day. We all need a miracle. God is offering us one through Jesus Christ. So I ask you lovingly, I say to you, have you truly, genuinely, earnestly sought for God? Have you really believed? Not the way Satan believes. He believes the facts. I'm talking about believing in such a way that everything changes. Your affections change. I now love Christ above any and all. That's the definition of believe in the New Testament sense. And have you actually exercised the gifts of repentance and faith? Let me close with this. I think I shared this with you a few weeks ago. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? Beloved, men don't land in hell because God is unwilling to save. Men land in hell because men are unwilling to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is why men and women land in hell. It's not because God is not willing. It's because man is not willing. It's not that God will not receive man. It's that man will not receive God. So as I close, Isaiah 65.1, God says, Here I am. It's maybe the most oft-repeated verse, you know, this year. God says, Here I am. Why then will you die? This is the invitation of God. Let's pray together.